Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Interview at IU. My name is Caleb Wood. And I'm Henry Holloway. And today, we have the special guest, Dr. Bruce Martin. He is a professor here at IU, specifically teaching some very interesting classes about psychedelics, which I don't know about you, Henry. That's not really a field that I think about much, but I know a lot of people on campus have been uh, probably experimenting with some of that stuff. So if you're into that, this is the episode for you. Get ready to learn all about psychedelics, their effects, and how they're coming into medicine with Dr. Bruce Martin. So welcome back to the interview at IU. I'm Caleb. I'm Henry. And our guest today is Dr. Bruce Martin, a PhD professor of anatomy and physiology here at IU. Uh, Dr. Martin has been here since 1979. Um, if you know of him, you've probably taken some of his uh, courses in basic uh, sciences that a lot of medical students have to take, or you might have run into him in some of his more interesting offerings, um, those being the Medical Science of Psychoactive Drugs for undergraduate students, which I know he's teaching this spring, and the Science of Psychoactive Drugs if you're an incoming freshman. Uh, he was also featured in the Radio Talk Show All In on WFYI Indianapolis, where he discussed his research into psychedelics, and he also happens to sponsor the IU Psychedelics Club here on campus. So, uh, just to start things off, um, other than our introduction, is there anything you'd like to add about yourself? Um, maybe just about your journey, how you came to IU, um, how you became a professor here? Yes, I uh, got into, <clears throat> excuse me, into physiology research. I was an undergraduate physics major, but I also liked human stuff, so I moved over into the human sciences when I went to graduate school, which was here. Then I went to a postdoctoral training at University of Colorado in, in Denver in the medical center. Came back here in 1979, did research in things like blood flow to the eye and all kinds of different things. Nothing to do with psychedelic drugs or even psychoactive drugs. And just about 20 years ago, a friend of mine in the department who was a pharmacologist said, let's go together and make a course in the medical sciences of psychoactive drugs. And you kind of do the physiology and I'll kind of do the pharmacology. So we did that as a team for about three or four years, and then he uh, had to retire, and then I took over the course, and that's when I kind of began to learn this material. So this was late, I guess, in my career that I got into this topic, but I've taught that course now for 20 years or so, and I've learned a few things. Although I'm not, I'm at pains to tell you that I'm not a researcher myself, I just tell people what other people have found out in their research. Yeah, that's fairly interesting. Um, so before psychedelics, you just studied uh, basic physiology. Um, what kind of research specifically did you do? Eye flow? Could you tell did, us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I did research in, the first thing I did was in respiration and metabolism, in, uh, in exercise, people doing exercise, how they were, why they were breathing more than normal, and you know, more than they were at rest. And then I got into some GI physiology. I was jack of all trades, master of none. And then about 10 years into my tenure at IU, one of my graduate students said, I want to go into, into the physiology of the regulation of blood flow to the eye, to the retina, 
And he did, and with great success, and he got a professorship up at Indianapolis in the ophthalmology department, and I kind of tagged along, not physically, but in terms of the research. And so for about a decade, we did eye blood flow research, and then I got to a point where I was tired of sort of going back and forth. I like to teach, so I just moved over into full-time teaching and took on some new teaching assignments, and that's why I ended up with the psychoactive drugs course. That's a... That's a really fascinating um, uh, career tra- tra- trajectory, as well as, uh, I mean, you've clearly done a lot in all aspects of, uh, you know, of the biological sciences. So getting into the, uh, your, uh, your uh, teaching, uh, teaching uh, look at that, course on psychoactive drugs uh, and your, uh, um, the knowledge you've accumulated in this area specifically, uh, could you explain to our audience who, uh, who may not know as much how exactly uh, uh, do uh, specifically these uh, psychedelic substances uh, work in terms of um, the chemical reactions that the body has and how this affects uh, the mind? Yeah, it's a, <clears throat> a great question and a difficult question because it's a, an issue that's not fully resolved that all drugs that act in the brain have a specific target. Otherwise, the drug has to get into the brain first. Then it has to have some action in the brain. And the most common action for a drug is to bind to a, what's called a receptor on the cellular level. Uh, typically, receptors are on the postsynaptic side of a, what's called a synapse in the brain between two neurons. And, of course, the brain consists of billions, if not trillions, of neurons. And they talk to each other through these synapses and receptors are found on the postsynaptic side as the signal goes from pre to post. And neurotransmitters are created in the presynaptic neuron and cross the synapse and bind the receptors. But the drug comes in and it will do something to hijack the system. And drugs can bind directly to receptors and hijack the system that way. And drugs have very different effects depending on which receptors they would bind to. And there are lots of different kinds of receptors in the brain. So it depends on what the drug does. Like alcohol binds to several different kinds of receptors that are widely distributed in the brain. And as you know, alcohol at fairly high levels has a million different effects in the brain. The psychedelic drugs are very selective in terms of which receptors they bind to. And they bind to one subtype of one subtype of one kind of neurotransmitter, and that's the serotonin neurotransmitter and the serotonin receptors. The serotonin receptors are divided into subtypes, A, B, C, D, and 1, 2, 3, 4, that, that the, one, the numbers come before the letters. So the 5-HT, which is the abbreviation for serotonin, the 5-HT2A subtype of the subtype receptor, so there's a 1, 2, 3, 4, and then there's an A, B, C, D, that little fraction of the serotonin receptors are the, what the psychedelic drugs bind to exclusively, and their actions are through that. And so what you're getting from those drugs is a very distinctive effect that would never happen in your normal life because your body never would just activate that small group of receptors. But the drug does, and you get a unique set of a constellation of effects, which we can go into, that we call the psychedelic effects. And if any drug has that effect on receptors, it'll have those same psychedelic effects. So there are several different drugs that are very different in their origins. Some are made in mushrooms. Some are made in the chemistry lab. 
Some are found in cacti. There's all kinds of different things. Those are the most familiar ones. If they bind that same set of receptors, their effects are kind of the same. So despite, um, I know some psychedelics like psilocybin, LSD, those are all different chemically, but they all bind to the same set of receptors, essentially. Exactly. It's very fascinating. I guess I never thought about that, that something so chemically different can bind to the same stuff. Despite being a biology major, I should probably know that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because like LSD is derived by, accidentally was derived in the chemistry lab at a major pharmaceutical firm. And they go, whoa, we bumped into this stuff. Whereas the mushroom's making the psilocybin and a cactus is making mescaline. So it's mother nature doing something similar. And of course, like you say, those drugs are structurally a little bit different, but they all actually are structurally a lot like serotonin, which is why they can bind that fraction of the serotonin receptors. So why would um, a mushroom or a cactus just develop that naturally? Is that a defense mechanism, like against being eaten, you think? There's there's two things that people think plants evolve these drugs for. There's either to be eaten, which for like a like it evolves a nice tasty peach so that you can eat the peach, the animal will eat the peach and then spread the seeds when the animal wanders off and then deposits the seeds someplace. That spreads the wealth and the plant can propagate itself or it can have something that is defensive that makes it make the animal sick if they eat it, if I might vomit or whatever, and, uh, or just prickly spines and things so you don't want to eat the plant. They, a lot of desert plants have a lot of spines on them and stuff. Now, where the psychedelic drugs fit into that, I'm not sure, but my guess is it throws off your consciousness from normal enough that it's a defensive way to keep the the predator, if you will, from chomping you up. Okay, makes sense. That's a, a really fascinating uh, way of looking at it in terms of uh, an evolutionary perspective. So the three major psychedelic drugs that uh, I think most people uh, know of are would be uh, LSD, lysergic acid, delta-amide, and of course psilocybin found in uh, mushrooms, and then uh, ayahuasca, which is uh, uh, used by a lot of Amazonian tribes for, uh, for religious and spiritual purposes. So, but uh, you alluded to another one, um, you, are you referring to the, the well, how pi, uh, peyote, uh, where that That's comes correct. from? That's correct. Yeah, peyote cactus is where a drug called mescaline comes from, and it's used in religious or spiritual rituals, if you will, of the Native American church. So those cacti are found in the desert southwest and in Mexico. And as you mentioned, ayahuasca is found in South America. And peoples down there use those, again, in religious or spiritual kind of rituals. That's uh, that is really interesting. I didn't realize that uh, peyote had the similar psychedelic effects as uh, psilocybin and uh, and other psychedelics. That is actually interesting because uh, I believe there was a First Amendment case concerning religious freedom and the use of peyote uh, in the last uh, few decades. Exactly right, and that's not entirely settled. Although they have, you're right, the First Amendment case said there's the Religious freedom lets you do this drug, which is otherwise illegal. One of the problems with this is that the different states have been left to make their own decisions about who can actually use, and the different states have very different, or at least 
significantly different rules about who can actually use. I mean, do you have to have an indigenous background in some way, genetically related, or do you have to, you know, what fraction of this? Or, But the point is, yes, the First Amendment case was settled, and those things can be used appropriately and legally in those kind of ceremonies. Uh, yeah, um, I guess just to move to kind of a different topic, well, related, but different question, I guess. Um, I'm not someone who uses psychedelics, I'll probably say that right now. <laughs> me either, <laughs> so. Me, yeah, you either. Um, but, you know, whenever I hear about them, you hear about, <clears throat> like, the idea of the good trip and the bad trip. Um, and I was just wondering, what's kind of the science behind that what cause do you know what causes a quote-unquote good trip or a bad trip yes i could talk about that i can't tell you why it happens exactly yeah. but i can tell you what people think and just as an aside i was laughing one time and said you couldn't get a football coach or basketball coach you'd never played basketball or football you wouldn't have a band director who'd never played an instrument but you can have a person who teaches psychoactive drugs that doesn't really use any psychoactive <laughs> drugs. So I have no experience. I'm just telling you what people tell me. And the question about good trip and bad trip is a fundamental one because when we think about the current plan and efforts and clinical trials to use these psychedelic drugs as therapy, obviously you're going to have to have a good trip of some sort to be therapeutic because a bad trip is going to be anti-therapeutic. You have people going to have emotional trauma from a bad trip. And the question is, why one and not the other? And for a starting point, you can think of the fact that these drugs are having an effect on your interpretation of reality. That as, you, as it sits right here and as you're listening to this, you're in your normal state of reality, in which case you're you and everything else is outside of you. But these drugs are going to change that interpretation, and the way it changes that interpretation depends on the drug you're using and the dose and your mindset before you use it. So if you're depressed or anxious or having a panic attack, that's going to make a big difference. And on the environment or the setting in which you use the drug, and if you're using it in a setting that is safe and supportive and you feel comfortable, that's a very different experience than if you're in a threatening or anxiety-provoking or otherwise more negative environment. So that's the setting. So the drug, the set, and the setting all will determine that. And all you can do to make a good trip happen, but you can't make it happen, is try to set it up with the greatest likelihood that it happens is to make sure the person is not in some sort of like suicidal state or in a panic attack state and choose the drug, which is not, you don't want the most potent drug like LSD is the most potent of these drugs, and a tiny amount will make a huge difference. And so if you make an error in the dose, that's going to be a real problem. So psilocybin has been the drug most commonly used in these studies, which is less potent, but otherwise the same kind of drug. And you want to be this, so these studies that are done therapeutically are in a hospital setting. They've got music playing. They've, got, they've found the most comforting, and relaxing, and inspiring music. And you have supportive people around you, and then you just hope for the best. Uh, yeah, that is uh, a, a great way of sort of uh, summing it up, how, like, the difference in terms of conditions. But so 
in terms of though like the way a lot of you know native tribes have used like for example ayahuasca for centuries uh some uh you know would say you know the structure that they have has um uh, permits uh sort of the facilitation of a, a medicinal experience because it's being used in yeah, organized structured ritual so i guess uh in terms of conditions are key but um, a lot of people do sort of, you know, turn um, to psychedelics and cite them as sort of being key to self-transcendence, like the um, the well-known neuroscientist uh, Sam Harris and, uh, um, and prominent atheist has talked about, you know, using them for self-transcendence for, you know, spiritual purposes. And uh, for the record, I don't use these, uh, I don't use psychedelics either, but... Uh, but uh, it is a, a compelling dynamic to think about and uh, how the, this research is being done. So I wanted to ask about, like, for example, Colorado, I believe, is they're currently in the process of, uh, of uh, legalizing uh, psilocybin for medicinal purposes. Um, so in terms of the way these drugs are viewed as being, you know, inherently negative. And then we have, you know, opioids, which are legal, you know, which uh, which are maybe not, you know, they're, they're not as mind-altering, but then there are, you know, diff- different issues in terms of, you know, overdosing. So, you know, potentially. And, you know, of course, you look at the opioid crisis. So in terms of... Uh, the way these drugs are used medicinally, how do you believe in, what are the biggest downsides in terms of, you know, people use them recreationally and how do, uh, you know, people prevent that, people that are, people that are going to do it anyway, what would you advise to somebody who's, you know, going, you know, going to use um, psilocybin in a non-medicinal setting, but they want to achieve a medicinal effects. Yeah, the self-transcendence idea is, is, an, is interesting because, of course, as you say, these native of the indiv- indigenous peoples who've used this are using this for a spiritual purpose, and that's self-transcendence. And there's a lot of issues here. The first is that recreationally, there have been studies of people, these are reports, people will tell you what they, they've done and how it's affected them, and they will say that you can do studies of hundreds of people who report that they've used the drugs. And to get the best positive good trip that is self-transcendence and would be spiritually affirming and maybe self-transcending, the evidence is that you want to do it not with friends but with some sort of a spiritual guide in some kind of a setting where it's not just informal. It's a formalized setting maybe the indigenous people using with a shaman or something like that, somebody who's been trained to help you through the experience. And you want to go into it with a serious mindset that you want to be achieving this, that it's not playtime, it's not recreational, because recreationally you end up with situations and there's lots of stories of people that get into trouble having just kind of playing around with these things. One of the problems with the legalization of mescaline 
is that the drug is diverted and people drive. Like it's going to be fun to drive while my senses are altered and my perception of reality is different, which is obviously catastrophic. So the need is to have a structured use of it. And then, yes, the and there's a sort of a convergence. The medicinal side is probably going to be telling us that the antidepressant and anti-anxiety effects of these drugs, which is where the future may be on the medicinal side, is due to the self-transcendence that what people would be getting on the more like someone who's not formally a member of a religious group would be doing it and saying, hey, you know something, I've, I now see the world in a different way. Wow, that's a, that is a good way of putting it. So in terms, though, of, in terms of like setting up the conditions and the mindset is definitely key. But in terms of, you know, uh, I've read about, you know, the dissolution of the ego that accompanies it. And I've, uh, I've heard from reports that it's like on psilocybin, like for both good trips and bad trips, you know, you see uh, all of time and space, you know, you feel it laid bare all at once. And it's like, you know, that's it. This is it. So in terms of the dissolution of ego, of the ego, you know, the loss of a subjective sense of self in, um, in existence, um, that may, you know, you may uh, not be as depressed. You may, but you're still, you know, do you, is it a concern that people sort of lose a, uh, a sense of themselves? Is that a prominent concern you've heard? Yes, and it, I think a good way to look at this, we have a, there's a figure someone drew that's a circle that shows all the different possible effects of the psychedelics. On one-third of it is the change in the interpretation of what you're seeing. Another third of it is this ego dissolution side. And the third third is what's called oceanic boundlessness, which is you find yourself in this interpretation of reality that you are merged into a larger story that creation isn't you individualized into a world in which there's you and then there's everybody everything else but you but you are part of a unified reality and that loss of ego boundaries can be frightening or it can be reassuring that you're not by yourself in the universe you're not the only person who's anxious here and in dying you'll be left alone or you'll disappear somehow but you'll actually be merging into a larger reality and it depends on a number of factors whether that ego dissolution that is experienced on these trips these experiences when you use these drugs often is experienced and a lot of factors will help determine if that is frightening maybe terrifying or is really not a problem. It helps you get into the good experience. It's worth saying that the very first LSD trip was taken by a man named Albert Hoffman, who was the person at a drug company in Switzerland who was and first did find this drug by accident. He took a large dose. He thought it was a small dose. And he described his experience, and in that experience, which was terrifying, he was especially terrified by the fact he thought he was losing his mind and he would never get it back. And that's one of the issues is this, is does this ego dissolution mean you're gone, which is what he thought, or are you gonna come back and interpret reality differently? And obviously after it was all done, he said that wasn't that bad and he ended up being a, an advocate for the use of LSD. 
although his first trip was not a good one. So um, hearing about this kind of disillusionment of the ego, I would figure it could probably um, psychedelics could probably be used to treat disorders which um, commonly affect the self. Um, like I've heard that PSD, sorry, PTSD is um, being treated experimentally with um, psychedelics. Uh, is that accurate? Yes, there are. I just looked this up uh, for a talk I did. It's, there's 87 clinical trials right now involving one of the psychedelics, most commonly psilocybin, but also LSD. And they're looking at all kinds of conditions, as you mentioned, Caleb, that include things like PTSD and all kinds of, all sorts of anxiety disorders, which PTSD is an example of that. And like you say, dissolving the ego when the case in PTSD, we're being tortured by these intrusive thoughts, maybe breaking that up a little bit will be helpful. And we don't know because people have not done the studies and are now starting to do the studies. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you know how effective relative to, I'm not well-versed in what we use to treat PTSD, with, but how effective psychedelics are relative to those existing treatments? I don't know the answer to that. I don't think their data is in. Okay. PTSD tends to be treated with group therapy, individual psychotherapy as a first uh, layer of things. And drug treatment of PTSD has not been terribly successful just generally. Antidepressants get used, anti-anxiety get drugs get used. There's a new treatment with MDMA, which is a, another illicit drug, but is now apparently useful in early clinical trials. So I don't think there's anywhere near enough data to say if psychedelics will help, but again, there's the possibility. So it's worth investigating. That's a, that's a really interesting point because in terms of the self-transcendence, you know, uh, theme, you know, that, that, you know, the disillusion of the ego accompanies that self-transcendence is, a, uh, you know, is key to, um, in some cases, curing uh, addictions for a lot of people. Um, I believe there was a, uh, a researcher by the name of Griffith, and his work showed that I believe seventy-five uh, percent of uh, in seventy-five percent of cases, um, uh, nicotine addictions were uh, were cured. Uh, According to uh, according to his to his studies, um, in the case of uh, psilocybin use, and uh, because of this sort of you know psychological phenomenon that is um, for many this sense of spiritual transformation. So, and a lot of people then philosophers you know um, try to to link it to the divine in some sense because it is sort of the most. I mean, transcendent experience you can have that, you know, the data of the senses as, uh, as Dr. Sam Harris described it, you know, the sort of the blending of the sense of the self and reality. But I guess in terms of like the so-called bad trip, the so-called, you know, good trip, uh, is it possible that one who uh, has had a bad trip, who maybe still, you know, gained some insight and, you know, felt, you know, the sense of the self, sort of, the di you know, the disillusion of the ego, you know, and the 
laying bare of uh, time and space all at once, is it possible that that bad trip can have therapeutic effects as well and maybe have therapeutic effects and negative effects maybe at the same time? And how... uh, and how does one who maybe uh, previously had a bad trip, like in the case of the researcher who uh, took LSD for the first time, how would they then um, mentally prepare themselves to experience the good trip? I saw you know, Joe Rogan was interviewing some uh, psychedelic enthusiast talking about the structure of the shamanic rituals and how that's you know just by surrendering to it. Uh, Joe Rogan, he was saying... Uh, you know, people just have to surrender. So is it just sort of preparing your mental state and surrendering? And also is there like potentially even like, since these experiences are so extreme in nature in a way that is indescribable, is there any such thing as maybe like anything in between a good trip and a bad trip? Lots of good questions there. And I think that yes, 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 that certainly there's things in between good and bad trips. Certainly, it's possible to have a bad trip and then do it again and have a good trip. I haven't got data on that, but that's undoubtedly true. Oftentimes, people will say, once was enough. Even if it was a bad trip, I don't want to do that again. Or maybe it was a good trip and I, that was, I'm enough, that's enough for me. There's no addictive potential in these drugs. But exactly what might happen and how that might affect the next use is not entirely clear to me how that would work, but people could, and I think you're right in terms of that yielding or surrendering oneself, that seems to be an important part of it. And while I'm on this, I'm riffing on this, you mentioned Roland Griffiths. He's a man who's a professor, a researcher at Johns Hopkins, which is the most prestigious medical school in the country. And it's because of him specifically that this whole thing has gotten on track, because if you think about what research on human beings involves, if anyone doing any kind of human research at any place, will have to go through a federally mandated human research committee that approves it as being safe. And that committee at Johns Hopkins, super tough to get things through because they want to make sure nobody gets hurt. They were like, what are we doing here approving this? So that Griffiths and his team had to make very sure it was safe. And one of the concerns then and now is if someone goes on a bad trip, let's say you're in a study and you go into a bad trip, We don't have any real way to stop that from happening. In other words, we can't stop it in the middle. All you could really do is put somebody under heavy sedative drugs, which you could do, and then wait until they could put it under general anesthesia until it wore off. But he was able to get this stuff approved and find that people on, in general, on average, had this profound effect. And as you mentioned, effective both for depression and anxiety. The first studies were on people that were well, the first studies of therapeutic use was on people that were had terminal cancer diagnoses and were being overwhelmed with the kind of anxiety that would come with that. They did much better. And then you mentioned the addiction stuff, which is a little different, but still, there, and you're exactly right, there have been showing some very positive results. And in that instance, they say the effect is a little different than self-transcendent in the sense that the person says, in this experience, will say, why am I letting this silly use of this drug dominate my life? My life is more important, different. I've gained a self-insight that changes my attitude about the drug. 
So, yes, you're right on all these counts, and how exactly they happen and how you control them happening is something that we still don't know. And uh, even with the uh, people who experience uh, traumatic trips, I can still still sometimes gain that insight with regards to addiction? I don't know that we could say a bad trip has insights. I think always we're going for what we would call a good trip, meaning that we gain insight and understanding of the bigger picture than our own individual lives. And we don't want a bunch of frightening, terrorizing experience. You can have a terrible experience. So that's, it's a matter of trying to find a way to get those things to happen. And that, that remains a big issue. Yeah. And what would, what would constitute like the in-between? Cause I, from what I've, from what I've, uh, researched it seems like it's pretty extreme like a good trip is extreme in one direction and then a bad trip you know with maybe the exceptions of just you know some interesting insights uh, for the most part is fairly traumatic at least the traumatic aspects of it so overall a uh, a fairly traumatic experience that you know sort of you have lost a sense of yourself in the moment and you know from, from what I've read, you know, like there's no going back. But uh, I guess what would constitute sort of the uh, in-between that you were alluding to? Well, I, one thing I read, and you mentioned the word surrender. I've read in one of Griffith's accounts that the people who don't have a, an effect on that helps them in terms of like you're treating people with depression. Well, the people that, people that go into it with like, this is going to be a bunch of garbage. You know, whatever happens, I'm just going to be real, real cynical about it. And that surrendering is to say, I'm going to accept what I experience in this as being meaningful. That when I, when my ego dissolves or I begin to sense myself as part of a unified whole, that that's going to be something that I will take seriously and will respect. And one of the ways to think about this, too, is that there's a, an experience called a mystical experience. And a mystical experience has been and is the property of people who were mystics. And all major religions have had strains of mysticism in them, whether they're Islam or Judaism or Christianity. And those experiences are indistinguishable from a good psychedelic drug trip where that trip will focus on the oceanic boundlessness. And that experience is experienced as I've become part of a unified whole both within myself and within the universe and it's good that this is a that that what's behind all of reality is a loving presence and I'm part of that that's the kind of experience that the mystics will talk about and what people will talk about with psychedelics and part of that too is studies on the brain show that what makes you you is there's a set of brain areas that work together called default mode network. That's a lot of different ways of talking about it. And that network is telling you, you are you and everything else is outside of you. And that never is disrupted in your entire lifetime. That's because, you know, you're you all your life, right? And that's how you cope with the world. Because if a predator is coming at you or you're a bus, you need to know that you're you and that's the bus. You got it out of the way. That unified chunk of the brain, the default mode network, it's a bunch of disparate brain regions that talk to each other, they break up and begin to talk to other brain areas, and you can see this on scans of the brain, under the influence of psychedelic drugs, and there's nothing else other than a mystical experience that happens spontaneously that will do this. 
And so this is a drug that can create a new state of consciousness, which if we take it seriously and surrender to it, then we're going to get something that may well be positive. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I guess to change topics a little bit, we mentioned kind of antidepressants a little teeny bit when we were talking about PTSD. Still can't say that for some reason. Um, But I would just, I'm kind of curious as to how antidepressants and um, psychedelics differ in their effects. Like, um, do antidepressants target a different part of the brain or is it the same part of the brain? It's a great question, and it, it brings us back to the, the deep question of how antidepressants work. We'll take the most commonly used antidepressants, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, of which Prozac was the first one. Zoloft is still widely used. They're all still widely used. And these drugs are blocking the removal of serotonin from the synapse, which leaves serotonin in the synapse longer, and so you're binding serotonin receptors longer and more. And in that sense, they're analogous in a little, in a small way, to the psychedelic drugs, which are serotonin agonists, or they activate serotonin receptors of the 5-HT2A type. But the differences are profound because people that use antidepressants don't have mystical experiences. They don't have a sense of oceanic boundlessness, but they do have, if these drugs work, and they're not great drugs. They don't have a huge, spectacular efficacy, but they do help people. They do have a positive clinical benefit for a lot of people. Part of that is to sort of help you understand the world as being not quite so terrible if it's depression and that you're not quite so flawed if it's depression. So in some ways they're working together, but exactly how either one works is not clear. And the the thing that makes psychedelics so very different is they work rapidly. Antidepressant drugs take a long time to kick in. And exactly where in the brain, because when you block serotonin reuptake with a, with a Zoloft or a Prozac, you're blocking it all over the brain. You're blocking it outside the brain. And you're giving it, even people, GI, you know, sexual dysfunction effects and GI effects and things. So much less accurately targeted, exactly where they work, not so clear. So yes, there's commonalities, but they're subtle if they are anything. And I'm guessing much like the PTSD research, where it's still too early to tell if psychedelics are more effective than antidepressants. Yes, too early to tell. We're only on, there's several stages of clinical trial. Uh, what's called phase three is where you have thousands of people in the study. And if you if the drug passes phase three trial, it can be marketed. We're not to phase three trials yet. We're at phase two trials, which is small groups of people. And they're working in phase two trials, which means they'll be moving on to phase three trials. But soon in drug development means years. So we're looking at five years, maybe, before these drugs might reach the market. And they will never be used in a way like other antidepressants where you get a bottle of pills and take it home for a month. This will be only used in the context of a carefully controlled clinical situation where you've got people that help you through the process and always coupled to psychotherapy and to pre-use and post-use, if you will, debriefing so that you're helping the person interpret what happened and they're not just on their own. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess psychotherapy can also make a, a significant uh, difference as well. I mean, or, you know, it can make all the difference in terms of uh, 
complementing uh, the psychedelic experience, but in comparison to antidepressants, um, you know, psychedelics, you know, it's not like you're going to be using it with the same commonality, maybe even just like once in order to achieve that self-transcendence. But the way I kind of look at it is you can kind of orient your thinking based through, you know, you know, the lens through which you see the world through media, you know, the things you're interested in, the people you interact with every day. So it's just, I guess it sort of forces a reorientation of your thinking in a sense and how that may relate to your, how you already view, you know, <laughs> reality is also, I guess, a key component as well. But it is interesting to think about how it's not as simple as, you know, you know, obviously these drugs you know, are very dangerous and must be used, you know, with caution, but you know, they're just fundamentally different from like opioids. And we have it sort of ingrained in our mind, you know, based on, you know, American law that in our culture that, you know, opioids are generally, you know, fine if used medicinally and not misused and abused, but psychedelics are not. But the reality is, you know, it just really, um, I mean, it's, I would say it's the same for psychedelics and even go as far, far to say is they were the norm. We may be, you know, far better off as a society. And in my uh, freshman year health class in high school, they, uh, we covered, you know, LSD and uh, psilocybin and, you know, it was just mainly an emphasis on the horror stories, you know, uh, um, you know, you know, and people, you know, jumping off buildings because they think they can fly and, you know, obviously, which is, so even if you're not risking, you know, drug addiction, you're risking something different in the moment depending on how you use it and the setting but it's also in the dosage and all these different factors, but the sort of, you know, propagandizing even, you know, in the American educational system, sort of oversimplifying and sort of uh, um, and, uh, discouraging in some sense uh, critical thinking. Um, I mean, I like my health teacher a lot. I don't I just want that <laughs> to be on the record, but, uh, but it is, do you think, you know, big pharma may... Uh, they may uh, attempt to play a role in sort of suppressing this, even if this the medicinal benefits for society at large would be uh, extraordinary. You've raised several great points, Henry, and big pharma is going to be behind this big time. There's a lot of drug companies that are raising money, startup money. There are, if I can say, there are startup companies and also big pharma itself. If you can get the clinical trials to show that this works. One of the things that we need as a society is a more effective antidepressant because antidepressant drugs we have, which are better than nothing, they have relatively low efficacy. What I have always tell the class, and this is an estimate or a rule of thumb, is that if you took 100 people with depression and gave them all our best antidepressant drugs, a third would get well, a third would get better, but not well, a third wouldn't get anything. So now, the, as you can see, the field is open. If a drug company could develop something that had, instead of, you know, 50% overall effect, maybe you could call that, and had 80% effect, you would have everybody taking it, which is millions and millions of people. So there's lots of money to be made on an investment in an effective strategy for making a psychedelic drug that would be useful. So 
that side of things, I think, is something that will be avidly taken up by drug companies. The other issue you raised was the fact that our laws about drugs don't match the science of drugs. So we think about, as you mentioned, the opioids, which have a lot of clinical uses, but we're, we're losing 75,000 people a year to overdose. And you can't overdose on psychedelics. You can take a lot of them, and you can have behavioral changes, as you mentioned, that can be hazardous, but nobody dies medically from an overdose of, an, of a psychedelic drug. So it's, you could argue the same thing about marijuana cigarettes and tobacco cigarettes. Tobacco cigarettes are vastly more hazardous for your health than marijuana cigarettes. They're neither of them good for your health, probably, but we know tobacco's not. But tobacco's killing hundreds of thousands of people, and they estimated like tens of millions in this century will die from tobacco-related illness. It's legal because, of course, it's big business. It was grandfathered in, and so that's the way it works. So, yes, because something is labeled as illicit or illegal doesn't mean it's necessarily a terrible drug. Yeah, and uh, how would uh, other, like, like for example, like marijuana use prior to a psychedelic experience or post a psychedelic experience, like, how does that factor into, uh, you know, the effects on the mind in terms of marijuana? Because it's uh, obviously it's not at all, based on what I've heard, as intense as, uh, um, you know, of course, a psychedelic experience, but it is still mind-altering in some sense. And uh, and also, uh, in addition to that, uh, why is it that some psychedelics uh, in turn have differing effects to various degrees in terms of like lysergic acid, delthamide, uh, LSD being more, um, having more intensive an effect on people than uh, psilocybin. It's a matter entirely of dose or potency there. Uh, the first question you raised about marijuana and how it affects, when you have two drugs that work on different pieces of the brain, different receptor systems they're called, then those drugs will not add to each other directly. So if we took two different psychedelics that both worked on the 5-HT2A receptor, they would have additive effects. But marijuana is working on a whole different set of receptors from the ones the psychedelics do. So they won't add or subtract from the psychedelic effect except as they change the mindset beforehand. So if they change the preset of your brain, either you've used them just now and you're in a state of altered consciousness because of marijuana, and you're relaxed, maybe, maybe you're a little anxious. Who knows what the effects of that use of marijuana are. That will set our, be part of our set prior to the use of the psychedelic. So that can make a big difference if you're in the acute state of use of another drug. Same would be true for alcohol or for methamphetamine. Once that's worn off, then that's only going to make a difference in terms of did that change your consciousness about and your interpretation of the world. That would then, in a lesser way, change your mindset. So all that matters with the use of another drug is, is it additive? And if it's not, then it's only a question of where that drug effect is that leaves you prepared or unprepared for that next psychedelic drug effect. Wow, and uh, just to touch on another key component of all this is uh, microdosing um, uh, um, in terms of being a, uh, in terms of these drugs being, you know, used medicinally, uh, by the public, uh, could microdosing potentially be a uh, 
AICIA, an alternative to antidepressants. And uh, what, what, what can you tell us about the effects of microdosing uh, versus that of, um, uh, you know, the, a full dose? Yeah, that microdosing has its origins in a sort of an elitist world of people that have access to these drugs. And, and it's based on the loose concept that if you take a whole lot of the drug, you're going to get a great big effect. And that great big effect might not be so good. That's what happened with, with Albert Hoffman on his first. He took 10 times the effective dose of LSD and got this enormously intense trip. So the th- microdosing theory is I take a little tiny bit every day, and then that's going to help me be more creative and that kind of thing. The, the jury's out on whether that's helpful. It's very unlikely that that will ever be something that will be done outside of the same we talked about in terms of psychedelic drugs in terms of being part of a psychotherapeutic context. We're not going to be sending people home with little doses of, <laughs> of LSD to take every day. Not very likely because there's just too much we can't predict. You take a bottle of aspirin home, you know what's going to happen. You're going to have you know, block platelet adhesion. You're going to affect you know, information coming from inflammatories, parts of the body, and nothing else is going to happen. But with a, a psychedelic drug, it's, you know, the jury's out on what could happen. So it's just unsafe in a general sense for the population to be doing this. And the other thing about microdosing is that the people who are, are evangelists for this tend to be, I mean, they've self-selected, and they've, they're telling themselves it's helpful, so they're going to, oh, it's been helping me. So it's a totally biased kind of thing. And the kind of placebo-controlled studies where you would not know what you're getting need to be done and done well before we could answer the question, if it's helpful. Yeah, makes sense. Um, Just to kind of bring things full circle here, we were talking earlier about just introducing you, and uh, we saw that you sponsor the Psychedelics Club. So um, for anyone who, any of our listeners potentially are interested in hearing more from you and the Psychedelics Club, uh, club after hearing this podcast. What can you tell us about that club and how could someone on campus find it? Well, you look under uh, Be Involved, I think it is, is the website has all the hundreds of clubs on the campus and you can just sign up and join. Every semester we have a, a student who runs things. I'm just overseeing kind of what's going on. Um, not in not, I'm not overseeing. I'm just there to make sure that nobody's doing something crazy. And the Club bylines are we're not doing anything that's ever illegal in any way. So this drug is this drug. This club is doing <laughs> things that are that are appropriate and legal. They're doing things that um, learning about the drugs in many ways. Sometimes uh, look having speakers come and talk and that sort of thing. So I think it's if you're interested in these drugs, it's a great club to join. There's a lot of different kinds of activities. There's many, in fact, I think we have hundreds of members, but a typical activity will have dozens maybe present. Uh, I've been a speaker every semester in our psychedelic club thus far, and uh, I talk about some scientific type of t- study or, or t- topic that's related to this. So it's, it's a club designed to help educationally people. And, and one of the big issues right now, and you mentioned states legalizing, and, uh, and one of the questions is, well, a lot of people think about possibly being a psychedelic therapist in the sense that they help people through this experience and how does that get done what are the bylaws and the rules and regulations about that those are the kind of issues the club talks about awesome well 
I think that is it for our time. Thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, I felt like it was really interesting. I know Henry did too. Um, and uh, yeah, just thank you so much. Um, this has been the interview with IU. Uh, tune in next time where we will have our next guest here. Well, that was an awesome interview. What did you think, Henry? Well, I mean, I uh, I hope our audience uh, loved it as much as I did. I mean, I was just um, invigorated the whole time. The insight that he was able to provide in real time, answering a number of uh, difficult, complicated questions, and providing so much insight on the spot um, in such a compressed amount of time to a... Uh, Know, so much information just within that 50 minutes. Um, he's you know clearly not only an expert, but you can tell that he loves engaging with it from all different kinds of angles, um, the scientific aspects of it in terms of the effects on the brain and the, you know, the binding of receptors, um, just the intricacy um, with his level of knowledge that comes with that. And then, of course, the other side of it, you know, the philosophical aspects of it and uh, the amount of time he spent uh, not necessarily formally researching it in a, in a lab, but, you know, researching it as a, as a scientist and as a scholar. Um, uh, I, was, I hope our listeners enjoyed it as much as I did. I loved hearing all of his insight, and uh, I learned so much, and uh, I hope that... Uh, I hope that this gives our listeners a more um, more thorough understanding of uh, how these uh, of how these drugs, how psychedelics particularly operate, and with a better understanding and being able to educate more people, I uh, I hope that that can have a positive impact. You know. Yeah, me too. I was really fascinated with some of the stuff you had to say. Um, it's really fascinating how such a small chemical can have such a radical impact on your brain. And it's an interesting topic because it's something that I see a lot of push forward in medicine. So to hear about potentially where the field might be going in the future, uh, I just really felt like that was relevant to me. Well, that is it, dear listeners. Thank you for joining us for another interview at IU. And join us next time where we have another special guest.